Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to read a few verses out of Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read and just work through it. And, and then I want us to gaze at this one truth about Jesus. But before I do that, before I pray, I, I was just thinking, I have, when we sing together, there's something beautiful about coming in and worshiping together. You realize that what we're doing here is more than just coming to listen to a sermon or learn something or... Yeah, it, there's something really powerful about being the gathered people of God, connected with people all across this earth who believe and trust in Jesus, that are part of the big global capital C church of Jesus, to come together and sing. There's something really, really important about that. And when we sing together, it's like my brain is firing on all pistons, and I just have these images and thoughts that flash through my mind. And one of them, ironically, is we were singing that song glorious day. I thought about how this whole Bible really makes no sense unless it is lived and viewed and read in light of that glorious day that Jesus is coming again. This book is not a set of principles and propositions and suggestions on how to live a better life merely here and now. This book is not about just these 70 or 80 or 90 years that God may give us. It's about that glorious day when finally and fully He will conquer and, and, and consummate His kingdom and all glory and His people, those who have turned and trusted in Jesus and not in themselves, will live with Him forever and ever in ever-increasing joy. And as we were worshiping together, ironically enough, I thought about Tom and Jerry, the cartoon, you know? Uh, it's sort of, it's got a little revitalization going on in my house. My four-year-old son, Abraham, that, that little old cartoon network, Boomerang or whatever, shows Tom and Jerry. It's one of his favorites. It was definitely one of my favorites growing up as a kid in the 70s. And in cartoons like that, you know, every now and again, there would just be this little technique. I think this happened on, you know, Wiley E. Coyote a lot too. They would, you know, the, the little mouse would swallow a magnet, or uh, he would swallow like some metal, and then the mouse would have this, bi- or the, the cat would have this big magnet, and he would draw him out. He'd draw him out of the little hole in the wall that was his house, you know, and ding, he'd get it, and of course, inevitably, it'd go bad for the cat somehow or another, but at least, at least that magnet worked in drawing him out, and as we were singing about that glorious day, I was thinking about how the resurrection and the day when Jesus will come again is like a magnet that's drawing our souls heavenward. And that nothing in this book makes sense unless we view it in the backdrop of that heavenward scene. It's like, it's like a play in Broadway. I remember Jennifer and I went to a play about 10 years ago when we were in New York City and, you know, they changed this. It's almost neater to look at how magnificent they are at changing the backdrop. But for the Christian, the backdrop, even though the scenes may change in our life, the backdrop always remains the same. The risen Son of God who is like a magnet with His grace and compassion drawing us with His irresistible love towards Himself. And when we view this scripture and when we view life and all of its ups and downs and triumphs and tragedies in light of that one great irresistible magnet, friends, everything begins to fall into perspective. 
And so let's approach this, this story, this scene that we're going to look at today in, in, light of, in light of that great magnet of the resurrection. Well, let me pray, and then we'll read. Father, as we come now to your word, I pray that as the psalmist says, that you would teach us wonderful things out of your law. I pray, Lord, for my friends in this room who may not yet know Jesus in all of his beauty. They may not yet be born again in Christ. I pray that by your kindness that you might give them a new heart so that they can believe and ears to hear so that they can hear the words of Jesus and eyes to see so that they can see the beauty of the only one who can rescue them. Lord, would you be so kind as to do that? And Lord, for my friends in this room who who are already followers and believers in Jesus, I pray that you would stir our affections and that you would help us to see the new wine of the gospel and how you come to reconstruct our old paradigms. Help us now as we read this this passage together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's, let's catch up to where we are. Remember, the first couple chapters of Mark are moving very quickly. The gospel writer Mark, who's a, a young ministry associate of the Apostle Peter, is very concerned with moving quickly and presenting Jesus' work as very quick and powerful. And he's showing in the first couple chapters Jesus' authority over uh, demons and evil spirits, his authority over our very lives as he calls these men to drop everything and follow him his authority over sin and sickness as Jesus just in an instant heals people. And now we see at the the end of chapter 2, and we'll see it even more poignantly in the beginning of chapter 3, we see this authority that Jesus is clearly claiming to have as the king of the kingdom that has broken into this dark world. We begin to see this authority start to be challenged and resisted by the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus has just had a dinner party with a tax collector and sinners that ruffled some feathers. And now we see these, these people starting to question Jesus and why he is doing things the way he's doing. And so we read in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, just after this dinner party that Jesus had with tax collectors and sinners. In verse 18 it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so let's stop there and and do some thinking. First is, when we see that word Pharisee, I think it's real easy to, because I think we kind of grow up in a culture where we're reading the Bible in a certain context where we're looking back and we kind of know the answers maybe already to some degree. I think it's real easy to bash the Pharisees. Uh, but let, let's cut them a little slack, because who, who were, let's think about who these Pharisees were, literally the, the word Pharisee means separated or holy one, and they were very serious, very, uh, very earnest and serious spiritual Jews who were very concerned with living by the, the law of the Old Testament, they were very concerned about the culture of 
the Jewish people not slipping into sort of becoming like a Roman-Greek sort of mixture. And, and they were like the conservative evangelical Christians of their day. They were, they were people who were concerned with God's name and they were concerned with, with uh, God's people not sort of slipping into the culture. And so, uh, in a sense, we're a lot, we share a lot of those same concerns with the Pharisees. Now, they, their problem was, and we'll read about this in Mark chapter 7, is that they didn't just believe or just rest and, and, and focus on God's word and his commandment and then see the grace in that, but they added other, what Jesus will call in Mark chapter 7, the commandments of men, sort of added these sort of extra stipulations to make themselves feel even more holy and, and sort of more religious. And so that, that was kind of their problem. And again, we might very easily look down the end of our noses and say, all oh, those religious Pharisees who just want to choke the life out of people. But, but I think hopefully we'll see today that we're, we're a lot like them. We, we like to kind of add stuff to make ourselves feel good. But so anyway, so the Pharisees are fasting. And what, what they're doing in their fast is, fasting's not a bad thing. In fact, Jesus in a sense, endorses fasting later on in the Gospels. But what the Pharisees were doing, there's really only one fast, which is, if you're not familiar with what that word means, it's, it's, it's not eating for a period of time to set your heart and your focus more on your dependence on God. And the Pharisees were, were sort of adding extra fast to the deal. And in the Old Testament, really, there was only one day that they were required to fast, and that would be the day of atonement, that one time when they would prepare their hearts for when the priest would go and offer the sacrifice. And that was really the only time that they had to fast, but the Pharisees, sort of adding a little bit to that, added in every Monday and Thursday as a time when they would fast. And so these Pharisees were adding to the commandment of God, and this is what Jesus says about it. This gives us a little clue as to the, the sort of attitude of the fasting of the Pharisees. This is what Jesus says in the first gospel, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Let me just read this. Don't flip there. Jesus is instructing his disciples on how they should fast, and he's, he's sort of underhandedly contrasting it with the fasting mode of the Pharisees. This is what he says, Matthew 6, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is, who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so what's going on here is just a contrast what is happening with the Pharisees and their type of fasting and how Jesus is going to critique it is the Pharisees, because there's nothing wrong with fasting. In fact, it's a good thing to do. But the Pharisees are very likely tweaking it a little bit and causing this fast to be, rather than something that would orient their heart towards God, to be something that would orient sort of attention on themselves and how pious and religious and righteous they are. It's kind of a, it's kind of a look at me and see how holy I am, sort of, a, sort of a posture by them. And so then, evidently, they're, they're causing a stir, because notice, just read, read sort of critically and slowly. I'll read it again in verse 18. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, period. And people, not necessarily the disciples of the Pharisees, but other people, just kind of innocent bystanders, 
came to Jesus and said, well, now why aren't you fasting like those guys over there? So how did they even get that question put in their head? Maybe there's just a little, you know, naysayer Pharisee. You know, Jesus doesn't quite do it like we do. He's over there partying with a tax collector and sinner while we're over here doing religious stuff. And so there's this sort of third group of people just kind of wandering around saying, well, Jesus, why, why don't you do this? And then we find Jesus' response in, in verse 19. Let's read it. And I love this because Jesus answers their question with a question. <laughs> just, you know, anybody else other than Jesus, when you answer a question with a question, uh, kind of comes across as sort of arrogant and smart-alecky, you know? Sort of sounds a little bit like Yoda on Star Trek or something, you know? You just want to slap people when they answer your question with a question. Unless it's Jesus. <laughs> Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, remember their question was, why don't you fast? Why don't you and your disciples fast like the Pharisees and the disciples of John? And Jesus said to them, answering a question with a question, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. All right, so again, let's stop. What is Jesus saying here? First of all, I think we need to clearly understand that Jesus is very clearly uh, confessing and announcing his deity. He is saying that, what he's saying is there's, there's no need to fast. In fact, let's back up a little bit. And, and, and in addition to fasting for the Day of Atonement, there were also fasts to prepare for weddings or funerals or special occasions. And what he's saying is, no, no, right now this is the time to feast when the bridegroom, who he is saying he is, is here. And for him to say that I'm the bridegroom and all of my disciples are the wedding guests isn't just giving you an analogy of a wedding. He is referring back to Old Testament teaching in Isaiah that clearly depicts and shows God, the Father, as the bridegroom of Israel. And so Jesus is, is basically saying, I am the God of the Old Testament and I'm here now and there's no reason to fast or to prepare for the wedding because I'm here, I'm the bridegroom, and these are my guests and I'm inviting, inviting them around my table. Jesus is saying that the time to prepare has passed because I'm here. And then he's also declaring his sovereignty by saying that there's coming a day when me, the bridegroom, will be taking away. He's, he's foreshadowing that day of his crucifixion where he will go away, and then that will be, again, the time to fast. So there's a couple of things going on here. Jesus is claiming to be God, and Jesus is telling them that he's, he's giving us a clue that he's sovereign over everything. The crucifixion and Jesus' resurrection didn't sneak up on him. God knows. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. And when I read that, and I know we're approaching an election, and I know some of these things come out of me, and I, Hi, Brad, how do you get this out of here? But it is great comfort for me to know that Jesus knows the future. Like He knows what's going to happen to him in three years. And if he knows that, then he knows everything else. He's God. He has set the times and the places of everything that has ever happened. 
And he knows what's going to happen in America. He knows what's going to happen in the Middle East. He knows that he's going to be taken away from his disciples. He knows who's going to be elected or re-elected president of the United States in 2012 and 2016. This is the most important election that our country has ever known. And 2016 will be the next most important election that this country has ever known. And then 2020 will be even more important. because, And then 2024 will be the, the most important election this world has ever known. Just like 2008 was the most important election this country's ever known, just like 2004 was the most important election this country's ever known. But you see that Jesus is sovereign over it all. He knows the future. Nothing happens to God. Do you see, do you see how comforting that is for a Christian who's living in unsettled times? Nothing happens to God. End of my little rant. Jesus is saying that he is God, and he's here now. And the time to do these sort of preparatory religious things, it's not appropriate right now because I'm here with you. It's like this. I thought of this analogy. Imagine how awkward it would be if you went over to somebody's house, and they were a good chef. They were a good cook. And uh, they spent a whole bunch of time telling you how excited they were about you coming over to their house and that they're going to they're going to cook their favorite recipe for you and then when you get there um, you walk in the door and man it smells good the oven's been baking uh, man you smell that pasta you smell that marinara sauce man you just smell it you, got, you know some meatballs are ready to go you sit down at the table and they put a whole bunch of um, Pasta on your plate with some big old heaping meatballs. It's got some cheese woven in there, and this is awesome. This little just marinara sauce, some, some. You know, it's just looking good, and you're, you're about ready to. And you're, in fact, you cut one of those meatballs in half, and then you lace a little bit of the rigatoni or whatever you got there on it, and you're and you're you got the fork, and you and as you're as you're taking the food to your mouth, like oh, let me put a little bit of salt on that, right? Let me just get a little bit more on there. You're like whoa, whoa, the, the time to prepare the food is over. Can I eat now? How awkward would it be if somebody was trying to put a little extra sauce right as it's going into your mouth? And that's what Jesus is saying. The time to prepare is, is no longer here. I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Don't do all these little things to sort of make yourself feel more pious or religious or ready. I'm in front of you like worship me is ultimately what he is saying. But there's something going on here, I think, a little bit more uh, profound and serious than just Jesus correcting their faulty timing on their fasting. I think he's actually critiquing not just their timing or misunderstanding of correct time to fast or who he was. I think he's cutting at their, their hearts and how their hearts were very far from understanding who he was and he shows that to us in these next couple verses let me read verse 21 and again remember this is in context of Jesus telling them now is not the time to fast because I'm here and he says in verse 21 no one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment if he does the patch tears away from it the new from the old and a worse tear is made 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So it kind of seems like these two little parables that Jesus gives are sort of from out in left field. Like, whoa, whoa, where did these come from? But this would have made a lot of sense to the first century listeners because what Jesus has just done is he's taken two uh, very normal scenes from a, uh, a, a group of people preparing for a wedding. Remember, this is in the context of, hey, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. There's no need to prepare for the wedding. Actually, enjoy the wedding. And, and so he takes two scenes that would have been very regular in the life of these people about preparing for a wedding. He, he says that, okay, you've got this tear in your shirt, right? And, you know, they couldn't just go to, you know, down to the mall and get a new shirt or buy a new tux or go to Men's Warehouse or whatever or Joseph A. Bank, you know, and get four suits, you know, for price of one or whatever. You know, you, like they, they actually had to make their clothes last, right? And so they would get their best shirt that had a hole in it and the old fabric, they would put a new piece of fabric over it to prepare for the wedding. And then when you shrunk that new piece of, or when you washed that new piece of fabric that was over the old, it would shrink and it would tear away. And so in the context of preparing for a wedding, Jesus says, no, no, don't, don't put that new thing on that old thing. And then he shifts analogies and talks about wine, which preparing for, you know, having a bunch of guests over at your house. It would have been very natural for them to put wine into a, a, a wineskin. And when wine goes into something, it's going to ferment and expand. And, and so if you put it into some old dried out skin, it would burst. And so again, he's making, he's making the same point with two different stories. He's saying, don't put new stuff on old stuff. And so in the context of what he's just said about how I'm the bridegroom, what he's saying is, is that I am new. Like who I am and my work and what I bring, the gospel, the good news of who I am, my kingship, my authority, you cannot lay it on top of your old paradigms and your old traditions that you have added to the Old Testament law. And he says that when you try and bring and receive me, I can't just come alongside those things because I will burst those things. And so what he's doing here, notice this, this is so important. He's not just correcting their misunderstanding of the timing of when they should and shouldn't fast. He's attacking their notions of what life and following God and worshiping God is all about. He's saying that I and my new order of grace are breaking into your old way of thinking and they come to burst and to shatter your paradigm which previously has been man-centered and now is Christ-centered. Look to me, stop doing little things on the side to make yourself feel better about yourself and worship me. And that is offensive. Not just to the Pharisees, but it's offensive to us too. Because it takes our ability to control our righteousness out of the picture. I think this is the point of these four or five verses, and it's just this. We'll put it up on the screen. Jesus shatters our religious paradigms and replaces it with the fresh wine of the gospel. Jesus shatters our notions of what it means to be righteous and replaces it with the grace and the mercy of the gospel. 
Jesus shatters our desire to justify ourselves with our own works and our own relative merit compared to everybody else and replaces it, replaces it with the free grace of trusting in his work alone. I think two things, just two applications for my heart and then we'll, we'll respond and worship together and think about this truth is that I realize how I am so prone to turn to good things and make them ultimate things rather than to turn to the fresh grace and new grace of Jesus. I'm pretty confident that I became a Christian about 20 years ago. But still there's something in my heart that wants to justify myself like these Pharisees with my... Maybe it's not fasting, but maybe it's some other thing. You know, there's something in me that wants to judge what Christianity and earnestness is by things that I'm strong at and you're weak at, right? You should study the Bible like I like to study the Bible. You should like the same songs that I like. You should have the same emphases, emphasize, empha, empha, whatever the plural of emphasis is. You should have them, right? And when you're weak at my strength, I, like the Pharisees, it's very easy for me to wonder why you're not doing it like like I'm doing it because at the end of the day, I'm kind of propped up by my fasting. Now, for me, maybe it's not fasting. Maybe it's some other thing. But for me, it's very easy to sort of justify myself by, by some little secondary thing. And then the second thing that I just applied to my heart as I was reading this this week is I am so prone, and I think we are, you are too, that we're prone to prefer that Jesus would just come alongside our pre-existing efforts and improve them and tweak them and sanctify them and accept them and endorse them rather than to completely deconstruct and resurrect us. We, we want Jesus to kind of verify and, you know, validate kind of what we're doing in comparison to everybody else and these poor saps who aren't doing it quite the way we are rather than have Jesus come and smash our old wineskins with the new wine of his gospel. Friends, this is Often painful news, but it's really gloriously good news. How so? Well, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, do you, do you, realize, do you realize how freeing this is to see this? There's not something you have to do. There's not like some little step you have to take. There's not some way that you have to carry your Bible. And there's not some way that you have to act. And there's not some sort of measure of goodness that you have to attain. There's not... There's not something that you have to do. 
Do you see that? What, what you have to do is you have to turn and see the bridegroom. You have to worship. You don't have to get ready for the wedding. You're, Jesus right now is, if he's saving you, he's speaking to you right now. He's giving you the very thing that you need, which is faith and trust. The only thing that you need is belief in Jesus. And even that is a gift that God gives you. Ephesians 2 says that. that, that, that even the faith that he gives you to turn away from yourself and trust in him is a gift so that you can't boast. And so you see that there's no, there's no prerequisite to be a wedding guest. There's no prerequisite to feast with the bridegroom. There's no prerequisite to be a Christian. The prerequisite is turning from your sin and believing in Jesus, and even that he gives you. Do you see how freeing it is? There's, there's not some little thing that you have to do. Did you see that if you're not a Christian? And then, if you are a Christian, do you, do you remember that? Do you remember that there's, there's not something that sort of elevates you above? There's not like the Pharisees of, of the day, and then there's John's disciples, and there's that sort of rank order thing, and I've got, well, I've got a John Piper book, and I've got this systematic theology on it, and I've got this, and I, we sing the newest songs that are out, or I'm doing this thing, I've got the Bible study, I'm going to this thing, and I'm, everybody, if you could just get to my level. That Jesus comes to deconstruct those things and turn our attention to him so that we're not sort of off with our backs turned to him doing sort of ancillary religious things, but we're sitting at a table, not fasting, but feasting on his grace and enjoying him, not our religious activities, but him. Do we see that? Like, are we, are we, are like, do, are we at the table as Christians, like, Biting into his grace, man. There's grapes and there's, there's big old turkey legs of mercy. And there's like stuffing with gravy. And there's pumpkin pie with whipped cream, man. And like brown sugars on everything, right? Right? It's just everything's got brown sugar and whipped cream on top. And we're at the table and we're enjoying God. That's what he's saying. Like that's the Christian life. Enjoy me. Like worship me. Like revel in who I am. Right? And instead of that, as Christians, we're so, we're so apt to just go out and sweep and do this and, you know, get ready for what is already here. Like, like enjoy me, come to my table and eat and sup and dine with me is the call of the gospel. And, and are, we, are we doing that? Like, are we reveling in the feast of the person and work of Jesus? And you see, some of us don't even like this type of, of message because you're like, yeah, yeah, Brad, but, but what do I do? Like, I want to go do something. I want, like, Tuesday's coming, and I need four little things that start with the same letter to help me get through Tuesday. And, and I, I'm not saying that the Bible's not full of imperatives about principles to living, but do you see when we don't, like, come across a scripture like this and see that where we created, we were created to feast and enjoy and revel and love and worship and have a party with God because of who he is, then none of those things can be added because when we add those things without this heart, they become religious fasting of the Pharisees. But when we see that we're at the table, then we can add all of the good principles to it because then it flows out of, it flows out of the feast that he invites us to. Does that mark, speaking to you Christian now, does that mark where you are with God right now? That type of 
table fellowship. Well, if it doesn't, this is another sweet morsel of the gospel. And we just turn from trusting in ourselves. Repentance isn't just once unto salvation. It's every day, Jesus, I pray that I just scoot my chair up to your banquet and trust afresh and enjoy you. Enjoy you. The chief end of man is to, come on, those of you that are Presbyterians know this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The call of the gospel is to enjoy God forever. Let's do that. Father, as we come now to revel and to see afresh, God, I, I want to enjoy you more. Like, God, I, I, I don't want to white-knuckle religious activities. I want to enjoy you. And so, Lord, where, where I am so prone to, to be like these Pharisees, to find myself caught up in doing busy things, to sort of prop myself up on some sort of man-made self-righteousness, God, would you show me those areas of my life where I'm nervous and anxious and man-centered, and would you cause me and my friends in this room to exhale and scoot up our chair to the table so that we can feast on the beauty of Jesus, like the beauty of Jesus, which is the only food that can satisfy. Lord, would you help us with that? Would we be a group of people that is marked by enjoyment of our God forever? And Lord, would you For my friends, as I prayed for at the beginning that are here this morning and by a work of your Holy Spirit, it has become clear to them that they walked into this room not truly believing in you. God, would you give them, if you've you've caused them to even be able to realize that, I, I believe, Lord, that that is a sign of your grace where you are giving them the very thing that they need, which is belief. You're giving them the thing that you require of them which is repentance and they are now able to just turn away from themselves and look to you and scoot up their chair to the feast that they can look to what Jesus did on the cross where he bore the penalty for their sin and he died and he extinguished and absorbed completely your justice and your wrath for our failings and then he rose again in victory over it conquering death and sin and shame and all of its consequences and now is calling us to turn away from ourselves and believe in him and is giving to his people the very thing that he calls for from them. Lord, for my friend that is in this room today that is seeing that and hearing that and believing that and hoping for that for the first time, God, would you just, would you, as only you can do, give them a heart to believe in Jesus alone. And then, God, may we together revel in the banquet that is the gospel. And then, God, may it flow 
out of this room and this morning and this worship service into every area of our lives. And may my life as a husband and my life as a father and my life as a pastor and my life as a friend and whatever little peculiarity that our, that our life is marked by God with this, with this enjoyment and with this joy and with this focus on Christ and His beauty penetrate into every aspect of our being and it would, would it fill up every part of us and inform every minute of our day in this coming week for your glory and for our joy. Father, would you do these things? In Jesus' name, amen.